strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. You're on the same team. You are struggling together for a common goal against a common enemy. And we must not forget this, friends, because so often the church gets caught up in division and infighting and petty disagreements because we have forgotten what and who our true enemy is. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. So turn your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And as you do, uh, let's just be reminded together that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands this morning. Um, Over 2,500 times just in the Old Testament alone, it says that God spoke what is written in these pages. Uh, We know that scripture has authority. It has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that scripture is sufficient, meaning that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have all we need to know about God and what God requires of us. We know that scripture is inerrant and infallible, meaning that it is absolutely true and totally trustworthy. And finally, we know that the word of God is active. It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's cleansing, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. Uh, As we come closer to the end of 2020, closer to the end of a year that has been fraught with chaotic change, uh, come to the end of a year where still some churches remain closed, uh, where the media and unjust leaders have promoted fear, inconsistent policies, and chipped away at our personal and our religious freedoms. Uh, Through all of this, the word of God has never been more applicable. It's never been more timely, and it continues to speak to us. Paul's letter to the Philippian church is important for us as a church to consider this morning. Uh, Yes, it is a different time uh, and it's different circumstances, yet it is truth that transcends time and circumstances that is to guide our lives, our decisions, and our outlook for today. Uh, Would one of you mind just kicking up the air so that behind us is not making noise? Thank you. Uh, So to catch us up on Paul, what's been happening? Well, he wrote this book, Uh, from prison in Rome, uh, most likely near the end of the year 61. Um, And during this time, he also wrote the books of Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. And this was during his first imprisonment in Rome, and he expected to be released. Uh, We know that he was released and that he lived in Rome, uh, as well as visited uh, other churches, other areas, cities that he had ministered in previously um, before he was arrested a second time that would eventually lead to his execution. The church that Paul planted in Philippi was the first one that he planted in Europe. Uh, and today, the ancient city of Philippi is located in northwestern Greece. Northwestern Greece. Uh, Paul's purpose for writing this letter uh, was actually as a, uh, if you look at it from this angle, from a, from a missionary thank you or update letter. Uh, and the reason why, there's a couple reasons for this. In, in, cha- in verse 5 of chapter 1, he refers, uh, it says, to their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
It says that they prayed for him faithfully in verse 19. Uh, Later on, uh, it says that, uh, or Paul acknowledges the financial support they had given to him, saying that no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Um, And so the Lord used the church in a special way there to support Paul uh, on his missionary journeys. They had set Epaphroditus uh, to Paul with gifts to bless him. Uh, And in turn, he sends this letter back to the Philippian church with Epaphroditus, most likely as the delivery man. And outside of thanking them for their support, Paul also is challenging them in a couple areas. Uh, He's challenging them to stand firm amid persecution. He's challenging them to be united together in humility, um, all the while looking to Christ as the perfect example of humility, all to empower us to live as lights in a very, very dark world. So as we come to our section this morning, we're going to be looking at the first or the, the last half of chapter one. And we have three main points we're going to consider uh, with a couple subpoints under each one as we go through them. So first, our first main point is that Christ is magnified in life or death. And we're going to see that in verses 19 through 26. We're going to see that Paul had a resolute hope even in the midst of a real conflict and that he chose to remain joyfully. Uh, Then we're going to see and be challenged that we need to be faithful without fear. Uh, And we're going to see that we need to have gospel conduct, um, even through great opposition, uh, and that we are granted to suffer along with Christ. And then finally, we're going to go back a little bit to more of the middle of the chapter on a bit of a positive, encouraging note. And we're going to see that even through all of this, that the church advances, the church advances. So let's read uh, verses 19 through 26 together to start. Uh, Actually, the end of verse 18, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in, in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So first in these verses, we see um, that Paul has a resolute hope, a resolute hope. And he has hope in two areas. Um, First, he has hope that he's going to be delivered from his present circumstances, whether um, that is delivered to minister another day or delivered into the presence of the Lord. Uh, And he had this hope based on two things, based on the faithful prayers of the believers and, most of all, because of his supreme confidence in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just on the prayer side of things, this really underlines the fact that it is so important for us to be praying for missionaries. Um, Many times in his letters, Paul expresses thankfulness for the prayers that have been offered on his behalf. And one of the great ways that we can be involved with missionaries here on this side of the world is to be faithfully praying for them. One of the things that Rick Davis encouraged to be five ways to be a global Christian, one of those was to be interceding and praying for missionaries. And not just general prayers, but to know their needs, to know the situation they are in, to know them personally to somewhat of an extent if you can, um, so we know how to better pray for them. 
just from our experience, as we were living in Siberia, um, a, a cold and desolate place, um, both geographically with temperatures down to minus 50, darkness in the wintertime, um, but spiritually, more than that, even spiritually, with a people group that was lost in animism. They worshipped the sun, they worshipped all kinds of different spirits. Uh, nothing would brighten up our day um, in the midst of a dark winter um, than to receive a quick note from one of our, um, one of our supporters, one of our friends um, that just said, hey, we got your newsletter, um, we're praying for you. Uh, and it's that, simple, it's that simple thing that would really encourage us. And so I in turn encourage you, if you get prayer letters from missionaries, um, not only pray for them, take the time to pray for the requests that they have listed, but then take that extra step and just shoot them a quick email, shoot them a text if you have their number, and just say, hey, I got your newsletter. We spent some time praying for you. It could be just as simple as that. And I'm, I'm telling you that will bless, bless them immensely. But... We, without the Holy Spirit working in our lives, uh, hope would be impossible to grasp. And so Paul relies uh, on the confidence that he has from the Holy Spirit. A couple other passages that tell us about his work. Romans 8.11, Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We see this amazing truth that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead has made us alive, also dwells in us. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit confirms our adoption as God's children. He gives us that assurance of our salvation. And one more on this same theme, uh, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, uh, forever and ever. Amen. So where does Paul's hope and confidence come from? The work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But that's not all Paul was hoping for. Uh, In verse 20, he says that it is his eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And we see the prayer for courage uh, and to not be ashamed. We see it echoed through scripture. We see it often in the Psalms. Uh, We see David asking for strength to not be ashamed. Uh, And we see the flip side of that as well. We see those who reject the Lord will be ashamed and condemnation will follow. For example, in Psalm 25 too, David says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Jesus even spoke of this as well in Matthew 10, verse 26. Just paraphrasing here, but he says that persecution is going to come, but have no fear of them. He says you should be much more afraid of God who has the power to both destroy body and soul in hell. These men, these oppressors, these persecutors, they can only take your life. They can't take your soul. In fact, they can't do anything without the Father allowing them to do so. So in light of that, trust in the Lord. Why on earth would we deny him knowing his power is at work in our lives and in this world? And so Paul is echoing this same prayer that many before him had prayed. He was confident that he would stand firm and the Lord would be magnified whether he lives or he dies. 
So Paul has a resolute hope, but he also has a real conflict, a real conflict. And verses 21 through 24 give us insight into this. Look at verse 21 again. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So even though Paul has a conflict, he starts off um, having it, explaining it already, um, having the right focus and priority. Uh, for Paul to live is Christ. Everything is summed up in his relationship with him. Christ was his, li- his re- reason for living and breathing. And he explains it even more in chapter 3. Just jump over um, to chapter 3 real quick. Maybe it's the next page over. Uh, And look at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then jump down to verse 12. Same chapter. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see that? Make it his own because Christ has made us his own. So well said. So the question is, is this our desire? Does this define us, describe us this morning? Can you echo with Paul? For to me, to live is Christ. Is it all about Jesus, like we have said here at Shoreline that is on our shirts? Um, Or have we let the events of 2020 make it all about us? Have we let a virus control our lives? Paul says that if I live, I live for Christ. To die is gain, and it's far better. But the question is, is why? Why is it far better? And you might think that would be a very easy question to answer. Well, of course, we're going to go to heaven. We will be with Christ. Everything will be fixed. No more sin. We will have new bodies. That's the way we often look at it. We often look at being with Christ as it's all about us. Everything with us changes. But look at it from this angle. If our life is not our own, if we have been bought with a price, if our desire is to glorify God, if the chief end of man is to enjoy him and enjoy God and glorify him forever, then how better to glorify him than to be with him. Free from sin, free from life's pains and struggles. No other focus but to be in his presence and all that entails. So we can understand why Paul would be um, hard-pressed between the two. And the Greek word here is pronounced sunecho, and it has the picture of a traveler on a narrow path uh, with rock walls on each side, kind of similar to this. Uh, it's Paul saying here, I have a desire to stay and have a fruitful ministry with you, but I also desire to be with the Lord. But in spite of these two competing desires that are just right up against me, that I can't even walk through here without running into the walls, I will walk forward faithfully. Now, Romans 8.23 says that those who are in Christ, it says that we groan inwardly uh, as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Do we groan inwardly? Do we wait? Do we long to be with Christ? I think we do. We long, of course, in this world, we long for the day when he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more, no crying, no pain. It's ever apparent in this world. We get it. 
We do. But the interesting thing is the decision that he comes to. Before we get to that, um, John MacArthur has a good word on this. He says, uh, take out the word Christ and put a blank there. For to me, to live is blank. What would you put there? How would you fill it in? He says, wealth, if living is wealth, then dying is what? Not gain, but loss. If living is prestige, then dying is loss. If living is fame, then dying is loss. If living is power, then dying is loss. If living is possessions, then dying is loss. If you're looking for prestige in the world, you lose it when you die, you're gone. If you're looking for fame, you lose it when you die, you're forgotten. If you're looking for power, you lose it when you die, you're lifeless in this world. If you're looking for possessions, they're all gone when you die. It's all over. He says the only thing you can put in there to make the last part make sense is Christ. If you put in that blank anything else but Christ, it has to be lost. It has to be lost. Only Christ makes dying gain. Only Christ. And I would add to this as well in 2020, the idea of safety. We hear this all the time. To live is to be safe. To be safe. Dying, well... Dying is not safe at all. <laughs> Many have bought into the lie that somehow, somehow, if you stay home, you don't participate in anything, then you will be safe, and others will be safe as well. And you know what? Only the government knows what is safe. We cannot be trusted to know that for ourselves. In fact, now, they will come into your own home and tell you what you can and cannot do in your own home, how many people you can have, what holidays must be canceled. It goes on. The attacks on personal freedom and on uh, our religious freedom here in America over the last uh, year has been astounding, astounding. Um, But taking it out of the American context, think of it as our responsibility as believers. This idea of safety is not compatible for Christians. We are called to be with people. We are called to practice hospitality. We are called to break bread and fellowship together. We are called to use our gifts together not for our glory, all for God's glory. It is not about us. So for a Christian to claim safety as the highest value while rejecting the Sunday gathering and normal opportunities for fellowship, that is sinful and selfish. But Paul sets the example for us. He does. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, uh, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So the last subpoint in this section is that Paul decides to remain joyfully. And his reason and thinking behind this is so important to us because he says, I'll remain for you. I'm going to stay here for you, for your progress and join the faith so that you can glory all the more in Christ because I will come to you again. And you will be blessed. He says, I'm sitting here in prison. I've been tortured. I've had a fruitful ministry. My time on earth could be done. The Lord could take me and nobody would blame it. Nobody would blame you. They say, Paul, you've deserved it. You can go be with the Lord. But no, no, the Lord ordained that I stay on longer for your sake. And it's not just my desire, not just his desire. It's my desire as well. Paul is giving up his desire to be with the Lord in order to continue to build his church. And this is a word for pastors. It's a word for all of us. Faithful pastors labor to see growth and joy in the church. Ephesians 4 says that God gave pastors to equip the saints for the building up of the church. 
And for us all, uh, just a couple verses later in chapter 2, Paul um, tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. Let each of you not only look out to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And my prayer is that each of us can say that our desire is for the progress and joy of the church. Uh, another example, I would highly recommend that you read the biography at Adam, Adoniram Judson. Um, there's a great one. There's a couple good ones. A great one that I read last year was called Devoted for Life by Vance Christie. Uh, he, he was the f- first ever American missionary. He was the first American missionary sent overseas, and he was an unusually godly man. Uh, he was a brave ambassador of Christ, and he went to a very hostile, very primitive, very dangerous, threatening country known then as Burma. Uh, today it's known as Myanmar. He was there uh, for about 35 years of ministry. 14 years in, 14 years in, all he had to show for 14 years of ministry was the graves of his wife and his children. He was alone. Uh, He experienced imprisonments that were wretched, conditions that were very severe and life-threatening. He contracted very dangerous diseases, very dangerous diseases. Uh, Yet he was faithful to remain. He never left. He never quit. He never checked out. He came back to America once uh, in about 35 years. Of course, it was a different time. It was harder to travel back and forth. But this is what he said. If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordained by the infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. In other words, he sought as part of the sovereign plan of God. Um, It would have been easy for him, just like it is, you know, we understand Paul's desire. It would have been easy for him to want to check out, to go to heaven, to be with Christ, to be with his wife, his children. He was actually married three times. His first two wives died, uh, and his third, his third wife uh, outlived him. It would make sense for him to want to be with Christ, but that's not what his desire. In fact, he prayed and he asked the Lord. He said, Lord, please let me live long enough uh, to see the Bible translated into the Burmese language uh, and for me to pastor a church of at least uh, least 100 Burmese people. And the Lord in his grace allowed that to happen. Uh, And he died there uh, close to Burma in the year 1850 at the age of 61. That great man, he had the spirit of Paul. That's the heart of Paul. On one hand, he longed to be with Christ. On the other hand, he longed to be useful to the church. On one hand, he wanted to be free from pain of life and ministry and difficulty and suffering. On the other hand, he wanted to advance the kingdom in this world. All the great servants of God are caught up in this dilemma at one point or another. Because it's part of spiritual greatness to know Christ intimately, it's also part of spiritual greatness to long to be with Christ. Because it's part of spiritual greatness uh, to be totally committed to the advancement of the kingdom, it's also part of spiritual greatness to want to stay and see people one to the Savior and the church built up. So great men and women of God live in that tension, in that dilemma. And so may we here at Shoreline find ourselves in that same dilemma. But we come to our second point this morning, uh, and that is that we are called to be faithful without fear. Faithful without fear. Uh, And as we look at verse 27, uh, we see a plea for unity here, grounded in gospel conduct that is worthy of the gospel. So look at verse 27 with me. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
So in order for us to stand firm in one spirit, side by side, we must be living our lives in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, that word worthy there in the Greek, it actually literally means to behave as citizens. Behave as citizens. So live in light of who you are in Christ. Live as citizens of heaven, not of this world. In Ephesians, Paul gives us a little bit more insight into this, into what it means to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Excuse me, Ephesians 4, Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another, one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. We see one, one, one. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace. Many of the fruits of the Spirit, but all unified uh, under one Lord, one salvation, one baptism. We're told a couple things here in verse 27. At first it says that we should stand firm. Uh, and so this is the image of a soldier standing at his post, immovable, protecting at all costs. And Paul repeats this command in other places. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, Galatians 5, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, they all echo this. Stand firm. Keep standing firm for the gospel. And it's also important to say a word on who is included in this unity here. Because we do not embrace, we do not embrace blatant error, false teaching, and sinful living in the name of unity. We have calls for this today. We have calls for people to get together uh, under a banner of unity when there is severe doctrinal disagreements. Uh, and that is not what is, that, that's not what this is talking about. There are people excluded from unity. Uh, and God's word is clear. And God's word tells us, go back to, um, go over, uh, I mean, to verse, or chapter 3 again of Philippians. Go over to chapter 3 again. Look at verse 17. This is what Paul says there in 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. So these are people Paul knew with tears, but they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. These people are excluded because they are enemies of the cross of Christ. A united church must truly be a redeemed church a truly redeemed church. Uh, other places in 1 Corinthians and Romans 16, Paul tells us to stay away from those who cause dissension, that cause factions, that cause hindrances in the church. Uh, we're told to turn away from them and reject them if there is no repentance. So simply, people who are in error, teaching error, believing error, are excluded from this unity because they're living a life that does not display gospel conduct. But brothers and sisters, this is a, a big reason why church discipline is so vital to the church. We stand together by excluding those in error and those in sin. And Matthew 18, Matthew 18 gives us the blueprint for this, that we are to do this step by step, graciously, in love. But if there is no response, they are to be put out of the church for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of true unity. 
Church discipline is critical to true unity of the church. We're also told to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so this one, instead of a soldier, it has an athletic connotation to it. You're on the same team. You are struggling together uh, with a, uh, for a common goal against a common enemy. And we must not forget this, friends. We must not forget this. Because so often the church gets caught up in division and infighting and petty disagreements because we have forgotten where and who or what and who our true enemy is. We, you know this, we are in a battle for truth against godless ideologies from demonic sources. They are attacks on the character and nature of God. They are attacks against the Bible, attacks against the biblical family, against marriage, against gender, and on it goes. Uh, the latest attack to come around in the last couple years, uh, but it's actually grown much stronger, is this idea of wokeism, a woke gospel, woke theology. You've, you've probably heard this. Um, the woke gospel says that in order to be an awake, true Christian, if you are Caucasian, you must repent of your whiteness. You must acknowledge that you are a racist at your core. You must affirm and proudly support the Black Lives Matter movement. You must reject capitalism. You must reject our history as a nation and work to reset every aspect of life and society to fulfill the goals of this false teaching that's rooted in Marxism. Woke theology is a cancer, and it attacks the very nature of the gospel. The true gospel, which says that there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, there is no Jew or Greek. We are all sinners by nature and by choice, but we are all redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. We are all redeemed. We are all one in Christ. We don't have time to expound on this more. Uh, we could do lectures on this. There's a lot to be said. Um, but if you are not familiar with th this that's been going around, I encourage you to research it out yourself. Um, some teachers that I would re recommend on this would be Owen uh, Strand. It's His last name is spe spelled Strachan. That's how you look him up, but it's pronounced Strand. Owen Strand. Uh, Vody Bauckham has some great stuff on this, and then Jeff Durbin as well, all on this subject. Encourage you to research it out. We must know uh, our common enemy. We must lay aside other petty disagreements and strive side by side together for the faith. Amen. Warren Wearsby said this the most important weapon against the enemy is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book, it is the consistent life of believers. I think that's very true. It's the consistent life of believers. Well, we have to move on. Uh, verse 28, it, we're called to be faithful without fear, even in the midst of great oppression, great oppression. Uh, look at verse 28. Paul says that we are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Did you know that over 300 times in the Bible, uh, God tells his people to not be afraid? I read that recently. I read that I, it's one of the most repeated commands in Scripture to not be afraid. Um, here we're told not to be frightened by, in anything by our opponents. We're never alarmed by our opponents. And the fact that they are our opponents is a sign of destruction for them, but is a sign of salvation for us. The fact, uh, and actually that they're both from God, that both of that comes from God. In other words, the battle, um, the battle is very defining. The lines are drawn. Um, in fact, it's the battle against Satan and his foes and all of his corruptions um, that draws clear lines about what sides you're on. It does. 
There are many today who are not fighting, unfortunately. They are led, their church is led by passive, cowardly pastors, which in turn produce churches that do not know how to fight. They do not know where the line is drawn. They do not know whose team they're on. And the, actually, the way we only find that out, though, is in the midst of the battle. Our doctrine, brothers and sisters, our doctrine must be so crystal clear that the enemies know who they are and the believers know who they are and know exactly who they are. This year, we've seen uh, opponents of the gospel show themselves in our country. Um, they've shown up in government leaders, even in some health officials, even church leaders, um, sadly, many churches and believers are not rising to the battle, but they are quickly giving up and fearing man instead of fearing God. And this is things that they say. You maybe have heard this. They say, well, we don't really have to sing. We can just listen to some instrumental music. Or, well, we really don't have to gather together. Watching online is the same thing, right? Or, well, we'll let the government tell us what to do in our church by uh, telling us how many people we can have in the building, by forcing everybody to wear masks and things like this, because it's only temporary, right? Well, the thing is, when you give up ground, it is very hard sometimes to get it back. We need, brothers and sisters, to have the proper perspective here on this. Um, because although we are seeing things happen in our own country, Paul's time was very different. Paul had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten. He had been thrown in prison. Faced death often, he says, but never backing down. Today, believers in Southeast Asia, in Northern Africa, in the Middle East, are being thrown in prison. They are being killed. They have to meet in underground churches in secret. But we will close our churches because of the coronavirus? No, we have got it wrong, my friends. Amen. It was much more serious for Paul. It is much more serious for other churches in the world today. They are standing strong. They are not frightened in anything, like Paul says here. But if we are so quick to give up grounds here in our own country, if we are so quick to give up ground and back down now, how will we stand in the future? How will we stand? I believe it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. So instead of shying away, instead of staying away because of fear, our attitude should be the exact opposite, according to the final two verses. So Paul tells us the last little sub-point here is that we are granted to suffer. Granted to suffer. Not supper. Supper's good. I like supper. <laughs> granted to suffer. <laughs> Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. A couple other places uh, in Scripture, Paul talks about this. Romans 8.17, he says, um, actually, before we jump there, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Um, we need to look at the purpose of suffering, the purpose of suffering. And Paul says that very quickly, very clear. Uh, and we have to be clear because we need to make a distinction here that the suffering that Paul is talking about here is, is referring to uh, persecution, opposition, and suffering as a direct result of being faithful to the gospel. Now, there is other sufferings we know, this, but this is not suffering because of a sickness, because of a job loss, because of a family event or other major life event. The Lord is faithful to work through those as well. But this passage is referring specifically to gospel opposition. But the purpose is clear right away. Paul says, for the sake of Christ. 
That's the purpose. And so a couple other passages speak about this. Romans 8, 17, Paul says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And that was written in his last imprisonment. His death was near. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then finally, one more, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now this verse is... Uh, Sometimes a little confusing because what is it saying? There's there's something lacking in Christ's work. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? Uh, And John Piper explains this well. I like what he says. He says, uh, what he means is that the one thing lacking in the sufferings of Christ is the offer of those sufferings in person to those for whom he died. So in essence, he is saying, all right, I will take the message of the cross where Christ suffered for lost people. And in my own missionary sacrifices, I will take that message to them and say, in me, behold the love of God as I sacrifice to come to you and preach to you and risk my life and imprisonment to preach the gospel. That's the thing that he provides that is lacking. Christ cannot personally offer himself to people today. In and through God's people, especially missionaries, he offers himself to them. And so they fill up what is lacking, namely the personal presentation of the sufferings of Christ in their own bodies. To believe in Christ is to have the opportunity to suffer for his name. Uh, In verse 30, Paul says that the Philippian church was engaged in the same conflict. And I don't mean to have back-to-back quotes, but these men say it better than I can. John MacArthur, on verse 30, he says, uh, when Paul went to a town, he didn't ask about the hotel, he asked about the jail. That's where he knew he was going to be staying. What he is saying here is something's wrong with you if you're not suffering the same level of conflict that I'm suffering. You're not going to get off with less. You're preaching the same message. You're living the same truth. Then he says, you want joy in your church? Stand firm in one spirit on sound doctrine. Fight the battle with clarity and take the suffering. Don't try to avoid the offense of the gospel and don't complain unless you suffer to the level Paul has. Strong words. Don't try to avoid the offense of the gospel. Friends, a time is coming and it's inching here. In some ways, it is here uh, where none of us are going to be able to ride the fence and keep silent. We're not going to be able to have one foot appeasing culture and one foot trying to be faithful to the Lord. It's going to be demanded of us to choose this day whom you will serve. Uh, Will we worship Christ as our only Lord and King and Savior or will we bow the knee to Caesar and culture? We're seeing it happen little by little. Uh, But as we bring this to a close, uh, let's leave on a bit of an encouraging note. Um, Our last thought today is that the church advances. The church advances. Uh, Look back in chapter 1 to verse 12, uh, and we see the result of standing firm. Verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so we see a couple things here. First, we see that the gospel goes forward. It never stops. And that's something I've wanted to encourage us all through this year. You've heard, you've heard me say it over and over again that 
the plans and purposes of Christ will never be thwarted. The gospel is never going to stop. The church is going to continue to advance. No virus, no politician, no situation in our world is going to stop that. It's always going to go forward. But he talks about the whole imperial guard. And at the time, uh, the, the guard was actually known as the Praetorian, the Praetorian guard. Uh, and one historian says that Paul must have been considered a very important prisoner uh, because these soldiers were the personal elite guards of the emperor himself that were watching Paul. Uh, and at the time of Nero, the number of the Praetorian God was about 10,000, 10,000 soldiers. Uh, and they had guards chained to Paul uh, while he was in this house arrest uh, in six-hour intervals. And so every six hours... Um, well, first, you get to spend six hours with Paul. Can you imagine that chain to Paul? It would be very intense. Um, but then there was guards that would be cycled through. And so it says that because of these guards that would cycle through, the gospel was now known through the whole Praetorian Guard, 10,000 soldiers. And this would have never happened if Paul was a free man. Uh, and so the Lord used that, used that. But it also says that other believers, other brothers, were much more bold to speak. And so after seeing Paul, that Paul's imprisonment did not halt the advance of the gospel, it gave other believers confidence to preach and to speak and to be bold for Christ without fear. And we've seen this throughout history. We've seen this in communist Russia. We've seen it in communist China, where the church underground has exploded because of the faithful witness of believers that have gone to persecution, that have gone to torture, and their stories come back to the church, and the church is emboldened because of that. Even in our own country today, even though it's not as extreme as a situation, even through this year, uh, the Lord has given some pastors large platforms, and some have not done well with that, but some have done well. And those that have done well and stood ground and said, no, we are not going to close the church. We are going to honor the Lord in this. That has given boldness to other pastors and other churches here in the U.S. It's given great boldness to me, personally. I've, it's, been, it's been really good. And so, it gives us confidence to be bold and speak of Christ. But I want to, as we close, I want to share with you a little bit of the story of John Bunyan. Uh, most of us all know uh, John Bunyan as the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, but you, what you might not know is that John Bunyan was a pretty well-known Puritan preacher. Uh, his, his preaching was, was so powerful, um, and he was speaking the truth, that he was put in jail. He was put in what was called the Bedford Jail, um, and they were trying to silence his preaching. But he would preach so loudly from his cell that his voice would carry over the walls, and there would pe be people that would gather at the walls of the jail to listen to his sermons, even though they couldn't see him. And so they said, well, we've got to stop this guy, so what are we going to do? Well, let's put him down in the farthest, the deepest pit that we can. And so they put him down in a place where his voice could not be heard. But you know what? That is the exact place that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison. They thought they had silenced him, but they had not. Instead, they gave him the opportunity to write that which has been preached to millions and millions of people. Generation after generation after generation has been blessed by Pilgrim's Progress. I encourage you, if you have not read it, it's the best allegory of the Christian faith written. Uh, my parents read it to me when I was growing up. We haven't read it to our kids yet, but we will. Um, it, is, it is such a good book. But it just illustrates it over and over again that you cannot bottle up the gospel the servant of God may be bound, but 2 Timothy 2.9 tells us that the word of God is never bound. It is never bound.
So for our application this morning, let's just read together uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 2 of Philippians. The first 11 verses of chapter 2 of Philippians. Paul says, after all of this in chapter 2, after all that we have heard, after we've been encouraged, he says, so, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This has been the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it that transcends time and culture. We can learn so much from your servant, Paul, who desired to be with you and yet at the same time desired to build up the church. Lord, we ask for that same desire, that we would live in that tension, fully understanding our place in this world. We know that our mandate, our calling has not changed, Lord. And so we ask that you would give us the boldness like you have been so faithful to do throughout history for those in the early church, for those in the church around the world that has been persecuted, and for us in the church here in this time in our country in Bradenton, Florida. May you give us the boldness to speak truth in love, to preach the gospel, to not shy away from speaking out when our country is raising up these godless ideologies and different things. Lord, we need to speak for truth. Lord, thank you for giving us faith. Thank you for giving us the comfort and hope and assurance that only comes from your Holy Spirit that gives us that peace that works in our, our lives, Lord. May we live by faith and not by sight, all for your glory, your glory in the church and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.